Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the dueling town halls last night, and then we're going to be joined by Noah Tolley from Wheaton College. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us again on a Friday afternoon. We made it. We made it to the end of the week. Uh, this has been a different week for us here at The Common Good as Ian Simpkins, my co-host, has been out of town enjoying a vacation this week. Ian will be joining us. He'll be back with us on Monday. So we're very excited for that. But through the course of this week, we've had the opportunity to talk to just some fascinating people and if you missed some of the shows this week, any of the interviews that we did, I'd encourage you uh, to go back uh, and check them out. You can do it on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com, and our podcast. That's the best place to do it. Just subscribe to the podcast, and uh, you can then just listen to it whenever you want. Also, we ask that you go ahead and, and uh, subscribe, not only just subscribe, but also rate and review, and uh, we are thankful for those of you who do that. Well, last night, it was a kind of a strange night, and I saw the highlights of these. I'm going to uh, be very honest and say that I watched zero minutes of either of the uh, presidential town halls last night. But last night was supposed to be the second debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And uh, then it got moved after President Trump uh, tested positive for COVID. It became a virtual debate. And he said that he was not interested in doing a virtual debate. Uh, and so what ended up happening was ABC News lined up to do a town hall with Joe Biden. And then uh, only a couple of days ago, NBC News lined up a town hall with Donald Trump. And many people were frustrated because they ran right against each other at the exact same time. So, but can't we stagger these so we can hear both of them? Uh, interestingly, uh, the Biden uh, town hall, this was not expected, actually uh, did better in the ratings, although I read somewhere that that may have had to do with a kind of a TikTok campaign campaign of people, young people, especially getting into on the multiple devices and stuff. Who knows anymore in this uh, in this political world that we're living in? But uh, I was reading an article that talked about some uh, five takeaways from the Trump and the Biden dueling town hall uh, town halls last night. This was at um, NBC News. And so two takeaways. And I think the biggest takeaway for me, uh, here, let me, let me talk about two concerns, one from each town hall that I had, uh, as I read and as I saw kind of the wrap ups of these one from each town hall. First, from President Trump's town hall, I continue to find it, um, very concerning and frustrating that President Trump will not distance himself and speak against uh, far uh, extremist groups, uh, but beyond that, the conspiracy groups like QAnon. Last night, uh, Savannah Guthrie gave him a chance to uh, distance himself from QAnon. And we have talked very much about QAnon, who the FBI recently warned uh, called a fringe political conspiracy theory group and called them very likely uh, that they very likely motivate some domestic extremists. And increasingly, Twitter, Facebook, others are clamping down on QAnon. Uh, but uh, Savannah Guthrie asked him, asked President Trump about QAnon, and President Trump uh, would not really say anything. And I just kind of wish, I wish he would just say, uh, 
they're garbage. They are to be ignored. They are dangerous. But he clearly doesn't believe that. And I understand that people who follow these conspiracy theories tend to follow, uh, tend to support President Trump. But um, it's just concerning. It's very concerning. And for those of us who are Christ followers, uh, I would encourage you to distance yourself from things like QAnon, from conspiracy theories, from these types of things, or at least at the very least, do your homework on them before passing them along. Now, for my concern from the Biden town hall uh, continues to be his approach on court packing. And so around the uh, confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, uh, there's been this whole concept out there that the Democrats are just going to pack the court and they're going to change the number of Supreme Court um, nom- uh, judges. And they're just going to change the way things have been done uh, for well over a century because it's not explicit to the Constitution as to how many justices we need to have. But it's been nine for a very long time. Uh, and last night, George Stephanopoulos asked very directly to Joe Biden, uh, what will you do about adding seats to the Supreme Court? And his answer was, it depends. Uh, it depends on how this turns out, he said, referring to the confirmation process of Amy Coney Barrett. He said he's still not a fan of court packing uh, because it could just lead to tit for tat escalation. Uh, but he expressed more openness to changing rules about lifetime tenure, and he didn't commit to any course of action, saying it depends. He says, I'm open to considering what happens from that point on, that point being the nomination and the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, Biden criticized her for some of her answers or non-answers at her hearing. And so uh, I would say that I find that to, I continue to find that part of the political theater also very disconcerting and um, concerning because I, I don't think that this is something to be taken lightly. And it feels like the Democrats are wielding this like a weapon right now. And I, and they're waiting. They're kind of playing out the political uh, feeling, the political win, uh, wind right now to see the best direction. And so I, I think that is concerning. And so those were the two things that got me most concerned from what I heard from each of the candidates. We'll give one for each. Love to know what you think. You can do so at our Facebook page. And one other thing I read out of the political world yesterday, Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, says he was in the ICU for seven days battling COVID-19. You might remember Chris Christie uh, came down along with a lot of the people in Washington, D.C. with COVID-19, and he got it the worst. He's got obviously some underlying health conditions. uh, And he says... Uh, now he's urging Americans to wear masks. He was in the ICU for seven days. He said, as a former public official, I believe we have not treated Americans as adults who understand truth, sacrifice and responsibility. So he's had kind of a come to Jesus meeting saying, I, I think we need to take this more seriously. And one of those ways is masks. And you may agree or disagree. I just always find it interesting when people who go through it become the people who then say, uh, we need to take this more seriously. I wish we could get to the point as a society where it didn't require us to feel the pain, but we could kind of uh, sympathize for other people's pain and and that be enough to what we say we need to do. But uh, Chris Christie, thankfully, he's okay, but he was in the ICU for seven days uh, and they gave him all sorts of experimental drugs. He seems to be doing well now, but he's saying, I don't think we're taking this seriously enough. So I'll just put that out there. You may agree or disagree, but I found that story to be interesting. Well, coming up next and for the rest of the hour, we're going to be joined by Noah Tolley. Noah is the executive director of the Center for Urban Engagement, and he's also professor of urban studies and politics and international relations at Wheaton College. Also my former college roommate. 
Excited to be joined by Noah Tolley for a couple segments next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you're having a great Friday. Looking forward to a good weekend. Uh, A little bit of fall air has come in, but hopefully still you can get outside and enjoy your weekend. Uh, My co-host Ian Simpkins, who has been out all week, will be back with us on Monday. We're looking forward to that. Ian has been enjoying a vacation with his family, uh, but we're excited to have Ian come back. I'm sure he is all full of opinions and everything else he's going to be ready to talk about. But as we've been saying all week, as Ian has been out of town, it's been an opportunity for us uh, to just bring in guests, guests that we've never had on the show, other guests who are returners. And, and that is the person coming up. We like to talk, call our returning guests friends of the show. And with that in mind, we are joined again by the executive. I'm going to give uh, your whole bio here, Noah Tolley. Let's see here. He's the executive director for the Center of Urban Engagement and professor of urban studies and politics and international relations at Wheaton College. Noah also serves as a non-resident senior fellow for global cities at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Noah, uh, coming from where you and I do, uh, having lived next to each other and then with each other at Wheaton, I never expected you to have such a long bio, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to be back and to be a friend of the program. I was actually <laughs> worried there that you were going to leave out the most important part of my bio again, which is that I was your roommate. You were my roommate sophomore so, year. <laughs> after the last time I was on the show, I made it a note to add that to my CV. So <laughs> how's that working out for you? <laughs> pretty well. You you should see the kinds of inquiries I get now. Uh, yes. Let me know how those go for you. <laughs> for those of you uh, who don't know Noah and I, we lived next door to each other on Traber three at Wheaton College, and then sophomore year we lived in a triple together. Been we've been in each other's weddings. Oh, we go way back. So uh, it's really fun to have a friend on the program. But Noah's also, as we read from his bio, uh, doing lots of stuff in life. So Noah. Uh, we kind of touched on a bunch of stuff there, but before we dive into kind of our topics of the day, and I appreciate you coming on because we're going to shoot all over the place today uh, as you join us for a couple segments here. Uh, but before that, why don't you introduce yourself a little more fully to our audience, however you see fit? Sure. Uh, yeah, I've been at Wheaton College as a faculty member for the past 15 years. Before that, I taught for a year at University of Delaware in the Center for Energy and Environmental Policy. My work has to do with urban and environmental politics, but of course, like everybody else, I don't only do work. I live in Wheaton. My wife teaches Spanish at the college, and we've got three kids, uh, Joe, Ben, and Rose. And the closer that Joe gets in age to our college students, the older I feel. <laughs> uh, I guess that's normal. It just means we're gaining you know, each of us a year every 365 days. But at the same time, I just feel more and more distant from everybody. Like I should be their dad. No doubt. Yeah, like, let me ask you, this wasn't our plan to talk about this, but I, you know, this, my oldest daughter's a junior in high school right now. So like, and oftentimes I still feel like when we were just in college, just messing around, playing video games, getting in trouble and uh, just having fun at college. Like, does it ever blow your mind? Like I, I've turned into that guy who's like, oh, be careful. It goes really fast. It is kind of wild to have kids the age our kids are, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Completely wild to have them the age they are. Joe is also a junior. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're actually, we need to file a FAFSA this year in, in November. All the things that I just thought only, only older people did, uh, you know, <laughs> are things that we're doing now. 
And that's okay. Um, it also means that I, I have greater and greater wonder all the time at the fact that I even made it through college. No doubt. Um, I'm, you also wonder that I made it through college, but that's for different reasons. Absolutely true. <laughs> hey, uh, so speaking of college, you're over at Wheaton College. We had a great talk with the president of Wheaton, Dr. Philip Reichen, the other day. And one of the things we talked about was just how has COVID changed the college experience? And so you're a prof. You're doing all sorts of things at the college. How has it been? Been this year? How's it been different? And how do you feel like the college is doing in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic? Well, the first thing I'd want to say that is that I think that Wheaton College is doing this very well. Um, you know, we hear stories all the time about uh, college with hundreds of positive tests within a week. Uh, hmm. One of the SUNY schools just had to close down their campus, at least for a time and maybe for the rest of the semester, because they've had 700 positive cases. And I wow. think that was in a very short, recent amount of time. Wow. We at Wheaton, I think we're still in the in the single digits. Um, you know, I'm not positive about that, but we had a surveillance test uh, a little while back where we actually tested every student and we had no positive ta- uh, results come out of that eventually once there mm. was a retest on the positive case. Um, I feel like people are embracing the kinds of of regulations that keep us safer, relatively speaking, in the midst of the pandemic. And partly that is because we, and this is my opinion, but that's because we have this long history with our statement of faith and our community covenant, combining those two things and talking about how we are committing to more than just being together in one spot for education. But we're committing to being to doing certain things for the common good of our educational experience. So when we ask people to do something, yeah, sure, you know, it's new. Masks are not something we would have asked for last year or the year before that, or when you and I were students here. That's but right. it's not new for us to ask people to make changes to their behaviors so that everyone can have a great learning experience. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. How? Uh, what's your sense? Because I know you're very tapped into and, and interested just kind of in evangelicalism, the church as a whole. Uh, so you've told us how the college is doing. But what, when you look at the, at the broader landscape of evangelicalism of the church, how do you feel like uh, the Church of America is doing in dealing with the COVID-19 response? Well, that's a good question. For me, I think um, it's it's very difficult to tease out the COVID-19 response and mm-hmm. the way we're handling the pandemic from the way we're handling um, our political moment, the way we're handling social unrest. Mm. And in some ways, um, I, I think that's a comment. That's an answer to your question. It's a comment on the question, right? Mm. Um, our inability to tease those things out and to, address things like COVID-19 in a not extraordinarily politically inflected way uh, is a comment on how we're handling it, which is, I I would say there are bright spots, but overall not particularly well. Hmm. I actually have, you know, ideas about what are we doing really, what are we doing poorly or what worries me? And then also some of the things that I think we're doing really well are things that give me hope. Mm -hmm. And I try to balance those things. Okay. What are some of those things in your mind? What are this? What comes to mind of what we're doing well? What comes to mind about what we're doing poorly? Yeah, good question. I always like to start with what we're doing poorly. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in the sort of you know, give me the bad news first way. Yeah, or, yeah. But also in the way that maybe the things that we're doing well or the signs of hope uh, can be maybe responses. 
to the things we're doing poorly. A lot of people have put their finger on uh, polarization, let's say, as something we're not doing well or evidence that we're not doing well. But I would actually point to three things that I think are, are underlying that and concern me more than the polarization outcome. I think, you know, our way of thinking through things, and we can get more into any of these that, that you sure, want, but sure. our way of thinking through things or not, right, that I, I don't think we're thinking well. I think we're um, abusing concepts like Christian liberty and Christian unity quite often to create license for thinking or doing or being disposed to do any particular thing. And then I also think that we're not focused on the common polluted stream from which we're all drinking, that's creating dysfunctions across the political spectrum hmm. and in the church. And, hmm. and that is sad because without addressing that, we're actually going to repeat this problem over and over or just find a new corner to, yeah. for this dysfunction. That's awesome. Well, we're going to, you teed it up. Let's dive into some of those when we come back. Uh, Noah Tolley is joining us. Again, professor of urban studies uh, and pol politics and international relations at Wheaton College, as well as the executive director of the Center for Urban Engagement. Uh, Noah is going to join us for a couple more segments here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Back to the common good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Uh, doing one more show without my uh, sidekick, yeah, Ian Simpkins. He'll be back here on Monday, and uh, we're looking forward to having Ian back. But while Ian is gone, we've been bringing through all sorts of guests, and we continue to be joined today uh, by Noah Tolley. Noah Tolley is the executive director of the Serbit. Uh, <laughs> I combined two words there, Center for Urban Engagement, as well as a professor of urban studies and politics and international relations at Wheaton College. And we also joked because Noah is also uh, one of my former college roommates. And so it's fun to have Noah with us. Now, Noah, before the break, you were teasing out some things that we're not doing well, uh, per se, as the church, uh, as evangelicalism, as, as it pertains to the COVID-19 response. And I want to dig down on one particular one you talked about. You said, uh, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but you basically said we're misusing, we're taking advantage of the concepts of Christian liberty and unity. Why don't you flesh that out a little bit for us? Yeah, thanks. I mean, that, that could be a whole show. I, yep. I worry for a second that, that my comments could be a whole segment. So stop me, <laughs> stop me if I get going. But, um, one of the things that I think that we struggle with is really leaning into understanding, living out Christian liberty, but also understanding the boundaries it has. It doesn't mean that anything goes. It means walking in the spirit. Uh, we're keeping in step with the spirit, right? As Paul would put it in Galatians. Mm -hmm. and, and so on the one hand, you know, we, we want to affirm that what Christ has done is, is that Christ has set us free from trying to justify ourselves. But we also, at the same time, sometimes confuse the good works God has planned for us to do from mm -hmm. all eternity uh, with works for merit. And, you know, to the extent that we think about works as things that merit God's uh, attention to us or justification of us or love for us, then we're wrong. Mm. But to the extent that we sort of dismiss what we do and what kind of works our life shows or fruits that we bear, uh, we're also wrong. And I think when it comes to this 
political moment, a lot of people have been leaning into the concept of Christian liberty in order to justify just about whatever behavior they want or whatever mm-hmm. position they want mm-hmm. to take. And you see it happen with Christian unity as well. Um, one of my favorite authors is a mid-20th century uh, French theologian and social theorist named Jacques Ellul. I'm still working. I'm working on a project on Ellul right now. It's it's my second big project on Ellul. And so whenever I'm asked a question, I think of things that Ellul <laughs> said. Uh, but one of the things that he, he, he wrote was this great essay called um, Christian Faith and Social Reality. And in it, he notes that Christians have particular things they can do that other people can't. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is we can tear down idols. That is, people can invest things that we do, our activities, uh, the things that we trust with a sort of soteriological significance. That is, we think they'll save us. We think mm-hmm. they'll deliver us. And Christians can come in and say, no, that thing won't deliver us. I'll work on that project with you. I'll be part of that party with you. But that won't deliver us. And that's tearing down idols. Mm. But Christians can also build bridges, he says. He, they can build bridges with people that they don't agree with precisely because we lower the stakes and we say those things won't deliver us, that we, we can actually engage without worrying about idolatry that way, but also with other Christians. And he's, he has this great quote. He says, Christians should always keep in mind, they should be good and faithful comrades for people in all political parties. And they should be members of all political parties, but they should always keep in mind that they have more in common with people who are in, with Christians in other parties mm-hmm. than they do with people in their own parties who are not Christians. Right. You know, and I think there's something true about that. I think that's right. I think that's important to note about Christian unity. And at the same time, I think it's limited. You know, for example, Elul would not have agreed. He, he wrote that after World War II, but he would not have agreed that a Christian could be in the Nazi party. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Elul himself fled the Nazi persecution and ended up uh, basically in hiding in rural France while he helped Jews escape occupied France. And Elul's father died in Nazi custody. And Elul was famously anti-Nazi. He would not have said that you could be a Christian and a Nazi. So there's a limit to Christian unity as well. And I think we need to be, you know, we tend to let the pendulum swing where mm-hmm. we either focus on the exclusions, focus on the, the limits, or we focus on the unity. We either focus on the limits or we focus on the liberty. And if we're not actually focusing on where the limits intersect with the liberty, where the limits intersect with the unity, then I think we're actually doing an injustice to those concepts. Huh, that's awesome. Man. Uh, talk to us about what you think we're doing well. You, you wanted to start with the bad news. How about what, what's going well right now? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. This is the more fun um, <laughs> part of the conversation when we get to talk about signs of hope. I yeah. think, um, I, and I've I've got three here too. One of them is are you know some people speaking more openly and more comfortably with the concept about the concept of political homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a sense in which uh, that can be abused. There's a sense in which our political homelessness can lead us not to invest in institutions. Uh, those could be organizations of any sort, but they're, for example, political parties, which can actually do some good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't want to embrace that too much. But on the other hand, our comfort with political homelessness, that, that we don't need to feel at home in one party or another, I think is good for us because it, it resists tendencies toward idolatry. Mm-hmm. 
And it also is perhaps a more fruitful place to be in terms of how we think about our common life, our life together with others. We can entertain more ideas because they don't have to fit with one party or another. They have to fit with our what we understand to be the implications of the gospel. And, and those might not fit one party or another. Right. And then another thing I'm, I'm encouraged by is um, learning from colleagues, uh, especially, you know, with me, that's here at Wheaton College, but mm-hmm. it's also more expansive. Learning from people who are on Twitter, on, on Facebook, who are Christians uh, of color, um, who have are sharing with us their experiences in the United States. And it's a transformative thing to just listen mm-hmm. to those. And the final thing, uh, you know, would be certain campaigns like the ad camp, the and campaign. Um, you've right. probably heard of the and campaign. Yeah, we've well, had Justin them on. Gibney. Yes. Oh, you have. Oh, well, well great. Justin you know, Gibney, you know but, all about yeah. what Justin and, and Michael are doing. Right. Justin right. and Michael Ware. Uh, you know, they're just doing terrific work talking about how we can emphasize both compassion and conviction at the same mm-hmm. time. We can yeah. emphasize both truth and justice at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a powerful campaign. I would, I would encourage people to go out and check out the AND campaign. Uh, let, let me throw you a question and we'll, we'll bring this over to the next, uh, part here. As the director of, uh, the Center of Urban Engagement at Wheaton, you're, you're very dialed into the city, obviously, of the city of Chicago. And last time we had you on, it was in the midst of all that was going on, the protests and everything going on in the city, the suburbs, everything. Now things have kind of settled down, at least if you're watching the news and other things. And I'm just curious and, and, uh, we'll care, like I said, we'll carry this over, but if you could start and, and let us know j- just what kind of a follow up on all that, all the kind of the racial societal unrest that was going on. Uh, do you think it's bearing still good fruit? Where do you think we are right now, both as a church and as a culture right now? That's a great question. Um, I think as a culture, we need to look out for two things. Uh, one of them is what people have often called a uh, black lash. Mm. Uh, that is after a moment of high tension, significant unrest, a lot of um, important and good response to uh, racial injustice, all sorts of potential um, reprisals, and these can be hmm. conscious or subconscious reprisals. Uh, these can be political repri- reprisals. They can be social repri- reprisals. They can happen in lots of different ways. Um, but all sorts of reprisals uh, are, are often seen after moments like this, where people are sort of revanchist. They're trying to take back territory that has been lost um, in the moment. I think we also need to pay attention that we don't allow uh, the the moment where we had a cathartic expression mm-hmm. of things in, in some protest or unrest to be the end yeah. of what we do. I think we need to pay careful attention to our tendency to complacency and instead think about how do we operationalize what we've learned and not just how do we have cathartic moments of self-expression or going to bat for others verbally. That's a great that's a great jumping off point. We're going to go to the break and then we're going to come back and I'm going to ask you, how do we as a church do that? How does the church uh, continue to move this ball forward uh, that kind of got started or really kind of ramped up over the last few months? That's Noah Tolley can continue to join us for one more segment here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. We're thrilled to continue to be joined uh, by Noah Tolley, not only my former college roommate, but Noah is more importantly the professor, of, a professor of urban studies and politics and international relations at Wheaton College. And he also serves as an executive, as the executive director of the Center for Urban Engagement. And Noah, uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about the momentum, the momentum that has kind of was getting going as there were protests and uh, all sorts of things, uh, civil unrest going on in our culture. Uh, and you brought up a really interesting point before the break. Just how does that momentum carry on? How does it keep going? Could you speak to that again uh, where you where we left off before the break? Sure. Yeah, I think in some ways the question for us is, as I was saying before the break, how do we not stop with some cathartic moment, some moment where we we registered our, our objection, we registered our righteous uh, uh, anger, we registered some moral outrage, and and then we walk away, right? Walking away and saying, oh, we're not going to do anything more about that, or we've forgotten and we've moved on to another problem. Um, sometimes we do that as quickly as the, the news cycle changes. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we need, if we're not treating this in a way where we're addressing it when George Floyd isn't in the news, when Mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor isn't in the news, when Christian Cooper isn't in the news, then we're not addressing it because that's precisely one of the problems Mm. um, is that when things feel to, uh, let's say, people in the dominant part of the culture as if they're a status quo, uh, then we don't do anything. And when things when we feel extra pressure, when things make the news, when something's on video, then we step up. And so thinking through what we might do, um, one of the things that comes to mind is that we might continue listening. And I'm not going to stop there because we can't, but I will mention it. Um, I actually take a lot of um, hope and encouragement from what I hear uh, from Colleagues around the country, I, I listen carefully to Nathan Cartagena here at Wheaton College. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at uh, Meditar Mestizo. Mestizo Meditations is his blog. Um, Malcolm Foley down in Texas in Waco. He's at Baylor. And Christina Edmondson, um, she's in Nashville now. And I, I think continuing to listen even when things are not as much in the news is something we can do. Hmm. Expanding who we're listening to is also something that's very important. The, this past summer uh, was actually a moment when the black experience in the United States was highlighted in, in a way that uh, hasn't been necessarily true with all of our different tensions about diversity, inclusion, justice, and unity in the mm-hmm. country mm-hmm. over the past 20 years. Um, it was a particular moment this summer that brought forward the experience of black Americans, but they're not the only um, Americans who experience the oppression of white supremacy. Um, that includes Latino Americans. That includes native Americans um, that I could go on with that list. It includes Asian American brothers and sisters and so uh, thinking consciously about how we'll expand who, from whom we listen is good. But then I would, I would also say that we should probably in our churches give some really careful thought to how intentional we're going to be 
about becoming a becoming a place that as the I'm going to steal a line here from the Institute for Cross-Cultural Ministry. You should probably have their their director come speak about this. This is a Washington DC Institute, but welcoming others as Christ has welcomed us and and as welcoming all others or how do we embody uh the kind of diversity that actually honors God mm. and um is a mark of the church as we see in Revelation but also as we see in the early church. Yeah. I think we actually need to to invest in that. And if we can't answer what's our investment of time, what's our investment of resources in those things, then we're probably not being intentional enough about it. Hmm. Uh, I do want to keep going there, but I want to ask you a different question. So go, I told you when we ended this, I'm, I was going to shoot to all different fields. Uh, you're, I follow you on, in, on Twitter and on social media. And I'm just curious, uh, Ian and I talk about social media all the time. And here's my question for you. Uh, as a dad, as a prof in a college, as all sorts of things, do you think that social media in general is a positive thing or a negative thing culturally for the church? What is your overall take on social media? And then maybe what are some uh, some tips you would give some people uh, and how they use their social media? That is such an important question for all of us right now. Not a day goes by, to be honest, when I don't think about quitting social media. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, man. Me too. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I just have to put that out there that yeah. I, I am not, even, even if I share further comments on it, they need to be taken in the context of, A, I think that social media is extraordinarily problematic, even if we find ways to engage it in more healthy manners. And B, I'm not even settled on it myself. Yeah. Um, if if one day you wake up and I'm not on social media anymore, don't be surprised. <laughs> uh, because I think it's incredibly toxic uh, socially, politically. It's uh, very bad for the church. And I know it has some upsides. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I, th I think that on the whole, I wake up more days thinking that the downsides outweigh the upsides. Mm-hmm. And I also think that in terms of the individual habits um, and vices more than virtues, that it tends to uh, inculcate in all of us, it's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what it invites us to think about ourselves, what patience or impatience it invites us to um, uh, to. It, that that it creates a sort of a characteristic of our response to our neighbors, mm -hmm. um, the lack of charity, um, and the fact that the opportunities that are gained in, in the trade-off don't seem to be that great. Um, yeah. So those things all worry me. That said, I'm still on social media, and <laughs> yes. you asked me, and you asked me how we can do it better. So I won't no. stop with. Uh, these are all my worries about it. Yeah. Um, one thing that I try to do is decide, you know, what will be my mission on a given platform? What am I trying to do on Twitter? What am I trying to do on Facebook? And not just make it for expressing all my thoughts. Um, I'm not always good at that, but I try. <laughs> um, I also try to engage less frequently and more at a distance. So I actually use some apps that allow me to distance myself from the engagement. So I'm putting something out there and then it may be a while before I see if anybody responded. Oh, interesting. 
And I may be able to respond. I may be able to engage more asynchronously that way Mm -hmm. and more productively. Um, And then I also try to, I try not to make it my, my home. And obviously I mean that in two different ways. One is it's not a home for me, you know, for my soul or, or even for my body, but I also try not to make it a home base for the things that I have to say and do. I have other home bases for that. My classroom, Mm -hmm. my, um, I, I have, I do some teaching at church. I write, as you know, um, in journals and magazines and in books. And those are the homes. And then the social media can be a bit of a, an outpost for those things. So it's not the things that social media does or, or allows to be done, the constraints that it has, yeah. they don't constrain what I might have to say completely. That's good. That's good. I, like I said, uh, the reason I asked you about it is because I think we both believe social media is an important cultural thing, but it's uh, it, it's a minefield. And yes. I like you, I'm constantly like, do I really want to do this? But speaking of social media, uh, if you want to follow Noah and see how he's doing with it, you can follow him on Twitter at Noah Tolley. That's T-O-L-Y. You can also sign up for his newsletter. Go to his website, NoahTolley.com. Uh, we'll have you on again, man, sometime probably to go a little lighter. We'll talk about, you know, the virtues of the Jersey Shore and how much you and I both miss that, the cheesesteaks from the East Coast. But maybe we'll talk football, uh, your bad Eagles team and my really bad New York Giants team. So that'd make for a good segment, I think. (laughs) That'd be my favorite show. There you go. There you go. Hey, man, it's great to talk to you again. It's always fun. I would love to get cheesesteaks. You you, you, need to talk off air because I've got some places that are great around here, by the way. (laughs) Anyway, that's Noah Tolley, professor of urban studies and politics and international relations at Wheaton College and also the executive director of the Center for Urban Engagement. Always fun to have Noah on. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, what is the percentage of Protestant pastors who back President Trump? And then we're going to talk about Amy Coney Barrett and motherhood. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, and we're in the home stretch right now. We're one more hour left in the week. Before the weekend is upon us, we hope that you've got big plans for the weekend. Starting to get chilly out there. Fall is in the air. Starting to get chilly, but at least it's a little bit sunny, at least right now. And uh, yeah, glad to have you joining us. If you missed any of our shows this week, whether it's earlier today as we talked to a professor from Wheaton, Noah Tolley, uh, or we talked to some authors earlier this week, some pastors, uh, we also talked to uh, President uh, Philip Riken from Wheaton College as well. Anyway, lots of great interviews is my point. And if you missed any of them, we would love to have you hear them because I think they're pretty good. And so uh, how do you do that? You could do that on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You could also do it uh, online at 1160hope.com. Probably the best place that you can do it is at our um, podcast. Go to the podcast, wherever it is you get podcast. Right? any place, wherever you get your podcast, find ours, The Common Good, and subscribe, rate, and review. Pass it on to somebody else. And there you can go back. You can go back and listen to probably our very first shows, which weren't very good. But uh, you can go back and listen to all. Look out. Just go find the old interviews that we've done, and it will be well worth your time. Well, 
you may not know this, but there is an election coming up. Uh, We are just a little bit over two weeks out from the presidential election. And uh, if you're like me, uh, those two weeks could not come soon enough. Let's get this thing done. get done with all the mailers and the signs and everything else. Uh, But an interesting research study done by Lifeway. So Lifeway Research, you can find this at LifewayResearch.com. And the title of this study says this, half of U.S. Protestant pastors back President Trump. So it goes, here's the research. Almost all Protestant pastors plan to participate in the 2020 election, but around a quarter still haven't decided who will get their presidential vote. In the latest election survey, Nashville-based Lifeway Research found 98% of Protestant pastors in the U.S. say they plan to vote. So almost all Protestant pastors say they're going to vote. When they cast their ballot, 53% of the pastors who who, uh, answered the survey say they likely are going to vote for Donald Trump. Around one in five or 21 percent say that they are voting for Joe Biden and a similar percentage, 22 percent, say they are still undivided. About four percent said they are going to vote for a different candidate. So half, 53 uh, percent said they're going to vote for Donald Trump. Twenty one percent said they're going to vote for Joe Biden and 22 percent still said they are still undecided. It said pastors vote like any other American and the large number of pastors who are still undecided may reflect difficulty in finding a candidate who aligns with overall belief. What becomes interesting is when you start diving into some of this, okay? When you start diving into some of this, uh, because uh, it becomes interesting as to why these pastors answered this way. Among self-identified evangelical pastors, Trump's support is similar to that of evangelicals across the country. Almost seven in 10 evangelical pastors, uh, actually 68%, say they plan to vote for the president compared to 20% of mainline pastors. In a recent LifeWay research survey, six in 10 Americans who hold evangelical beliefs pick Trump over Biden as well. Um, so what are the motivating issues? That's This is where it becomes really interesting. When asked which characteristics of the candidates are important in deciding how to vote, clear majorities of pastors said a couple different ones. So I want you to think about this. Uh, how do you think uh, people would have answered this. Why? Uh, what are the issues that are most important to you that you're voting on? Now, what do you think came out of the research? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what they found out. 70% say the candidate's position on abortion. Uh, 65% said their ability to protect religious freedom. And 62% said they're likely Supreme Court nominees. So fascinating, 70% abortion. This isn't surprising, 70% abortion, 65% religious freedom, 62% Supreme Court nomination, close to half point uh, to an ability to improve the economy, 54%. And 54% also said to an ability to maintain national security, 53% said personal character, 51% answered their position on immigration, 51% said their ability to address racial injustice, and 47% said uh, the size and role of government. Fascinating to me that only 35% said that the candidate's ability to slow the spread of COVID-19 is at all important to them. Uh, pastors also selected the single issue most important to determining their vote. So the last one was, what are the myriad of issues? But what's the one issue? Uh, only the candidate's position on abortion got 25%, their personal character, 22%, religious freedom protection, 16%, and Supreme Court nominees got 10%. Those were the only ones that got above 
10%. So I just find these pretty fascinating uh, that it's uh, the pastors are a lot like the rest of the people out there in the church and beyond as to what they are voting on. Uh, so anyway, love to know what you think about those. And then also at uh, the Gospel Coalition, Justin Taylor put out an article the other day, uh, and I have a feeling some of you on our Facebook page are going to have big feelings about this. Uh, it's titled this, The Case Against Pro-Lifers Voting for Joe Biden. 25 years ago, he writes, John Piper said, no endorsement of any single issue qualifies a person to hold public office. Being pro-life does not make a person a good governor, mayor, or president. But there are numerous single issues that disqualify a person from public office, Piper said. For example, any uh, candidate who endorsed bribery as a form of government efficiency is disqualified. Or a person who endorsed corporate fraud would be disqualified. Or a person who said no black people could hold office. Or that single issue makes you unfit. Okay, these examples could go on and on. Everybody knows a single issue that for them would disqualify them for office. John Piper goes on later then to say, I believe that the endorsement of the right to kill unborn children disqualifies a person from any position of public office. It's simply the same as saying that the endorsement of racism, fraud or bribery would disqualify him, except that child killing is more serious than those in the opinion of John Piper. What this means is, and Justin Taylor, this is him going on. What this means is that being pro-life should be a necessary condition for earning my vote, but is not a sufficient one. I want to commend a new piece this week by Robert George. They look at Joe Biden, a Roman Catholic who claims to agree with his church about abortion, but does not believe he should impose his religious belief upon others. In other words, he is in the camp of those who are personally opposed to it, but who believe it should be legal. Uh, because this is truth. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, George and his co-author go on to say, for government to permit abortion, the church teaches is for government itself to commit an injustice against its victims, denying a disfavored class, the unborn protection it affords to all others to be responsible or partially responsible for the injustice of the law in exposing unborn children to legally authorize lethal violence is to be complicit in grave Injustice And Justin Taylor is going to it's a great article. I'd encourage you to go read it. Uh, but Justin Taylor is going to close his article by saying this. There are compelling reasons to refrain from voting for Donald Trump. But this piece by George and his co-author and others is one of the clearest I have read arguing why Joe Biden does not deserve our vote. He goes, I would also commend this piece from Jonathan Lehman. Uh, and others. So that's uh, I thought this was interesting. Just yesterday I did or two days ago, we did an article uh, that was titled from Ron Sider and others who said, I'm pro-life and I'm voting for pre uh, for Joe Biden here. Justin Taylor at the Gospel Coalition says, if you're pro-life, you can't vote for Joe Biden. It doesn't mean you have to vote for President Trump, but you can't vote for Joe Biden. Which do you agree with? Uh, do you agree with Ron Sider going, no, there's more to it than abortion and we've got to weigh these things? Or do you agree with Justin Taylor here at the Gospel Coalition saying, nope, it's a disqualifier for me? Can't be. Go to our Facebook page. I would love to know. This This is going to get all sorts of debate, I'm sure, but I would love to know your thoughts on that. Go to the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about Amy Coney Barrett uh, and kind of the myth of the hero mom that uh, we're, that is kind of put out there. We're going to talk about this article from Christianity Today about Amy Coney Barrett next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. So Hello there, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Hopefully you've joined us throughout the week. 
at Christianity Today, uh, they put up this article today that I found fascinating because Amy Coney Barrett is in the news. Amy Coney Barrett is uh, the uh, President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court to fill in uh, to take the spot of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, is a nominee pretty different from any nominee that we've had. So uh, she is uh, comes out of Notre Dame, very strong Catholic faith. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett also is a mother of seven children. And so people and, and they're school age children, they're young and she's young. And, and it makes uh, she'd be one of the first, if not the first Supreme Court justice with young school age children. And so people are kind of fascinated by Amy Coney Barrett's life, by her family, uh, her husband. How is this all going to work out? Uh, and with that in mind, uh, really found this article uh, challenging, helpful, thought provoking over at Christianity Today. This is written by Jen Pollock Michael, and it's called Amy Coney Barrett's Message. The maternal hero is a myth says the trope of mother as super parent is a resounding rejection of grace. Let me dive into a little bit of this and let's uh, talk about it as we go. Every nominee to the Supreme Court faces intense scrutiny, she writes, and Amy Coney Barrett is no exception. Uh, Nominated to fill the seat of feminist icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Barrett, a mother of seven, seems to represent a new kind of possible. It's not simply that she has managed a career alongside a family. She's managed what Mike Pence called a sizable American family, a long-sized, large-scale professional ambition. During her confirmation hearing, senators expressed admiration for her, quote, tireless, remarkable, even superstar example. But if Barrett succeeds, she'll become the first woman on the court who's a mother to school-aged children. Predictably, there have been a spate of articles touting the gains of Barrett's represents for conservative women. As one woman put it, Barrett looks both like the woman in her church and the professors in her grad school. She seems to be the whole package, she said. It's a public ovation that's well-deserved. Still, the author writes, I worry about this. What myths do we perpetuate by assuming that Barrett and women like her are doing it all and doing it all by themselves? Right. One of the first articles I read about Barrett cited the early morning hour between four and five a.m. at which she rises to exercise before ferrying some of her children to and from swim practice to see her maternal form against the dark sky. The sun cradled beneath the horizon reads like epic poetry. Or as Proverbs 31 details, the virtuous woman is one to gets up while it's still night. As the story takes shape in our Western modern individualist mind, the solitary heroine ris- arises before the house ar- arouses. This is a picture of virtue performed alone, one requiring a cape, not the cadre of friends and fearless babysitters whom Barrett thanked in her 2017 confirmation hearing for her appointment. Uh, to the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Seventh Circuit. Indeed, when her name was suggested as a potential replacement for Anthony Kennedy in 2018, Pat Robertson named misgivings that other conservatives surely shared. He said, that's going to be tough to be a judge who takes care of all those kids, won't it? The default assumption is Robertson in Robertson's world is that family is not a shared project. It's a woman's work and work that is single-handed and done in seclusion. However, we know that this picture of motherhood is far more recent than historical, and it's hardly biblical. Furthermore, Barrett herself has debunked this myth. She has always been clear to say that hers is more than a one-woman band. In addition to crediting the flexible work arrangements, she thinks her husband, Jesse, a private practice attorney whom she's described as a selfless and wonderful partner. In fact, friends attest that he's the one responsible for carpool and for cooking. 
Barrett is managing it all, at least in part because someone else is making the dentist appointments. She's living less like a superhero and more like a human being. She isn't to be admired for performing tightrope acts for courage all by herself, as if she can defy a time as one might try to define gravity. Instead, she's dependent on a larger social body, something she was clear to acknowledge in her opening statement at this week's confirmation hearing and which bears out in her participation in the faith group People of Praise. In other words, if there is a heroism in Barrett's story, it's the heroism of teamwork. I want to pause right there on that sentence. In other words, they write, if there is heroism in Barrett's story, it's the heroism of teamwork. It's that we can't go at this by ourselves, right? I'm going to get back to the article here in a second. But so often, especially it seems like when it comes to women, we'd say, oh, look, at she's carrying X, Y, and Z. And and in reality, uh, the way most families work is is not just the teamwork of the husband and wife, but it's the teamwork of of aunts and uncles, grandparents, babysitters, friends, whatever else it might be. Uh, it's the old saying, it takes a village. And that's what is part of Barrett's story. It's the teamwork. When you ask, how can this person be a Supreme Court justice and do all that she's done and have seven kids? The answer is teamwork. And I love how Jen Michael uh, Pollock here writes that that's the moral, the heroism in the story. She goes on to write, help is something I wish that I had asked for more often in the days when my children were young, she writes. As I've written about and in other publications, ours was a very traditional domestic arrangement. At 27, when my husband and I welcomed our first child, she writes, I offer him to my career while my husband continued working full time, finishing exams, graduating from grad school. Even as I began to take on occasional writing projects, I nursed the idea that work was merely a distraction from motherhood and marriage. I felt responsible to absorb work into my days in ways that were nearly imperceptible to my family. I nurture some regrets, uh, but I don't regret the choices we made, but only our profoundly malnourished imagination. I had little grasp of the collective responsibilities that mothers and fathers, children and even churches have for the family and for the flourishing of individual members. As Caitlin Beatty put it in the New York Times, if a generation of girls is to follow in Judge Barrett's footsteps, they will need explicit support from religious leaders. As such, evangelical and traditional Catholic communities must find ways to honor and affirm the ambitions of half their members. But perhaps even more than permission, even more than permission is needed. So long as women are admired for doing it all, as if all by themselves, we miss the invitation of the gospel that we get to be a needy people. As the creation narratives in Genesis 1 and 2 make clear, we're made for relationship with God and with one another. Our work, whether domestic or professional, is always a co-labor. Mothers, like fathers, like children, like every human being, aren't made for autonomy. Even the autonomy that parades like courage and selflessness. And Jen Pollock Michael closes it this way. Heroism is not required for making life work. Dependence is. What a great article. I think this is really timely with all that's going on with Amy Coney Barrett right now. We put it up at our Facebook page out of the Christianity today. How do we juggle everything? It's not just take it all upon yourself and just run yourself ragged. It's harder. It's teamwork. It's dependence. It's help. It's relying on, uh, on our, on our church. It's relying on our, our spouse and other kids. It's relying on uh, family structures. It's everything. Uh, it's, it's dependence. And so, uh, I wanted to bring that up because a lot of this conversation is going on right now with Amy Coney Barrett. And, uh, I think it's, is a really interesting perspective. Find it up at our Facebook page, the common good 
radio show. Well, coming up next, I wanted to just play a clip from one of the most inspiring preachers that I know. We're going to play this clip and talk about it next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, Hopefully, you've got big plans for the weekend, apple orchard, pumpkin picking, whatever else it might be. I've got uh, looking forward to a weekend with the family. Hopefully, uh, you're able to join your church in worship, whether it's virtual or you guys are doing in person, whatever it might be. Hopefully, that is also part of your weekend coming up. Uh, Ian and I have talked often on this show that our primary jobs in life are that we are pastors. We've both been pastors for a long time. And uh, one of our favorite parts about pastoring is uh, preaching. And so uh, we get the opportunity and not just the opportunity, the uh, the responsibility and the blessing that comes with preaching. I never knew. And Ian talks about this often, just how enjoyable it is to be able to get up and open up God's word with people. It really is a privilege and uh, it can be also be uh, intimidating. It can be drudgery at times. It's, it's not like some euphoric thing all the time, but what I would say is uh, every now and then I, I think most pastors step back and be like, man, this is, this is uh, a blessing. And this is also a responsibility to handle God's word. Well, uh, to engage my people. And uh, so it really is uh, kind of favorite part of my job. And I know Ian has talked in many ways. I'd say one of the favorite parts of my job and Ian has talked in similar vein. And uh, as a preacher, uh, there there are certain people out there who are like preachers to the preachers. Like you, when you listen to them, you go, oh man, that that man or woman is just kind of on a different level in I like not only to listen to them, but I find them intimidating or something. Uh, for me, I, I love to listen to Matt Chandler right out of the Village Church in Texas. I love to listen uh, to Matt Chandler, uh, but he's phenomenal. Andy Stanley, right? Andy Stanley's another one. I wonder who they are for you, Alistair Begg and others like that. Uh, but one person who definitely falls under that umbrella is Tony Evans. Tony Evans, if you have ever sat under Tony Evans' teaching you leave, quite frankly, just going, that that man's got a gift. That man has a gift. I remember listening to him one time uh, at a fundraising deal. And when he was done, I was just mesmerized by every word that he had to say. Uh, it was just compelling. And so I was uh, just online the other day and I came across, I have no idea if this is old, recent, but I came across just a two-minute clip from a Tony Evans sermon. So I clicked on it. And uh, I wanted to my first thought was, man, I want I, I want the people uh, of our show to hear this, that it's it's just powerful. And here's my prayer. Here's my hope in playing this is simply that the person out there who needs to hear this t- today, who needs to hear this encouragement right now uh, would hear it. OK, so two minutes. Let's listen to this clip from Tony Evans and then I'll come back and talk about it. Whenever you have a problem that's too big for you to handle, call it Goliath, because then you know how things going to wind up. David says the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. In football, the quarterback receives the ball. And so the other team is coming in to tackle him. They're coming in to destroy him because he has the ball. When he takes the ball, he's also invited a problem because there are 11 other men who want to do something about the fact he has that ball. They don't want him to have that ball, and they want him on the ground. And they are doing everything they can to get him on the ground. 
All right, so the man's got a gift. Let's just start there. The man has a gift. But the word, but what he had to say there, I think, is so important. And I've got some of you in mind out there, the people right now who feel like they're going through struggle and battle. Uh, Tony Evans talks about the battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. And, and many of you right now are going, yeah, I get that imagery of battle. Because day in and day out, whatever it is, it could be, right? It could be pandemic related. It could be health related. It could be financial related. It could be relationship related. But right now, whatever it is for you, it could be mental health related. You're going, I, I get this concept of battle. Like life is really hard right now. Tony Evans says this. He says, the battle uh, is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. And then I love the imagery, this football imagery. He says the QB takes the ball. And when the QB has the ball, when the quarterback has the ball, that's the person everyone's trying to tackle. I've never really thought of it that way. Whoever's got the ball is the target. Okay, they're going for that guy. They want to run and tackle the person with the ball. But when the QB hands it off to the running back, or when the QB throws it to a wide receiver and that wide receiver catches it, people stop trying to hit the quarterback and they go try to hit the running back or the wide receiver, whoever now has the ball. The reason why is that they're running all the time is because they're holding on to the ball. And then in classic Tony Evans fashion, he's saying, for some of you out there, the message you need to hear as you struggle the message you need to hear as you battle, the message you need to hear as you feel like you're being chased down, metaphorically speaking, is hand the ball off. Is hand the ball off. He says the battle is not yours. That God says, uh, I will take it from you. And it doesn't mean that all of our lives become easy and everything becomes, oh, this is, this is just simple. But what it does mean is, is that God takes, takes our struggles upon himself, that, that he promises to be with us always. That, that God says, uh, you know, you know, uh, cast your anxieties upon me, right? God says, uh, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. There's this picture in scripture of casting, of giving uh, our anxieties, our struggles, our worries, uh, our battles to him and that he takes them uh, and that we are relieved in some ways of that burden. What's your battle right now? What is that that's weighing you down that you are just shouldering on your own? Hear God's words that Tony Evans talks about here, like you're not meant to shoulder this on your own. I found this to be such good news. And I don't know who needs to hear that. Some of you might be like, ah, I don't think you're right about that. Or nah, I didn't need to hear that. But there's somebody out there. There's somebody out there that needs to hear that. And my prayer for you right now is that you would take a moment and just pray. And that you would present your requests, your anxieties, your struggles to God. And find the peace that passes all understanding. Find the rest he promises. So thankful for Tony Evans and his good word there. Hopefully that bless somebody. We're going to come back with a little more audio. We're going to come back with something next here as we close up shop for the week here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside... Oh, not alongside. How did I do that on the last one, John? I just said alongside Ian Simpkins. He hasn't been here all week. You, you know, I mean, Brian, come on. If you were a pro, you've been alongside myself and my producer. <laughs> Man, I, uh, I haven't been doing it all week. Ian is on vacation. For those of you who don't know, he is uh, out of town and he will be back with us on monday john my producer you got any big plans for the weekend a beautiful fall weekend uh my sister i haven't seen in about a month she lives in ann arbor uh works at the university of michigan's gonna come visit uh my older sister's <laughs> birthday so i'll be that'll be that'll be fun good to see good. everybody i'm going to my son's uh fall ball baseball game tonight Ooh, it's, gonna be chilly. it's going to be freezing they played it's, last night too yeah Here, you gotta oh hear this they played at the uh joliet uh slammers minor league stadium which was so cool but it was awesome but a it was cold and b my son's team was up nine four with two outs in the ninth uh two outs in the sixth the last inning and ended Mm. up losing gave up 11 runs and lost uh they lost uh 14 to 10 (laughs) you don't have to name names but was it poor pitching or poor defense Every you met, you know, when you're at those games, and sometimes you're reminded of the age of these kids, but you're at these <laughs> games where, where the even in the major leagues where they're playing so well, and then the wheels just come off. Yeah. So, everything yeah, when it rains, it pours. Just so everything. The answer to your question is yes. <laughs> like, was it pitching? Yes. Was it defense? Yes. Was it? It, it was so bad. It was heartbreaking because they played so well oh. all game and they got to the last inning and it just, it just started snowballing on them. But just anyway. two yakety sacks or something. The, yeah. the, the beauty of uh, 13 year old boys and everything is they just. Yeah, as long as they get ice cream after, they're good. They, get them next they, time. They quickly bounce back. So, they're playing yeah. tonight. It'll be fun. I love watching them play. And, uh, yeah, it, it'll be fun. So wanted to end in a way that we've been trying to end a lot of shows lately. And that's just either with good news or inspiration, something to send you into your day, hopefully with a smile on your face, something to think about that gets us away from the divisiveness of our politics and our culture uh, and something to talk about. And so with that in mind, uh, I found a well-known clip from somebody we've obviously quoted more times than I can remember on our show, and that's mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers. So Mr. Rogers, this is in 1997, receiving the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Emmys, I believe. Uh, and it's just wild. I'd encourage you to go find uh, to go watch the uh, video clip of it. But what's amazing is just to see other people's reverence of him and listening. And John, you told me something that happens in this that I didn't even wasn't aware of. Why don't you tell our listeners before we listen to it? Yeah. So, well, th- this clip is from uh, just his reception. It's his reception speech. It's when yep. he's actually given the award. He has a short little sweet speech that is, is very nice and sentimental. But the entire show, when you, when you get a Lifetime Achievement Award, the entire show is dedicated to you. They're just pouring into you with with compliments and accolades from from your career and what you've contributed to whatever you are getting an award for. And, uh, you know, we, we know Mr. Rogers. He was on for, what, four decades at this point and has impacted so many people. And in the early 80s, I can't remember the exact episode, but I remember it was a kid you know, bound to a wheelchair and the point of having him on was, you know, show no matter your physical ailments or your abilities, you can impact the world and your community. And that was the whole thing. And it 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 struck, you know, it struck everybody. It was amazing. And apparently, Mr. Rogers, by 1997, had seen this guy in 
two decades, the guy in the mm. wheelchair. So after they showed the clip, they surprised him and brought the guy out as a keynote speaker. He's there, and Mr. Rogers couldn't couldn't help himself. He dropped everything in his lap and leapt onto the stage. Didn't he take the stairs? He crawled onto the stage to go to this 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 person who he remembered from two decades earlier. And you just you could see the heart of of Mr. Rogers, the authenticity. Yeah. The, just he's so different than everybody else that who's been in pop culture, just anybody in general. Yeah, I'd encourage people to see the movie. Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Or, no, it's called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Yeah, Fabulous. One. Really good. So let's listen to this. It's about a minute and a half. And then I just want to reflect for a couple minutes on it. And I think it's a great way to send us into the weekend. Let's go ahead and take a listen. Oh, it's a beautiful night in this neighborhood. <laughs> so many people have helped me to come to this night. Some of you are here. Some are far away, some are even in heaven. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take, along with me, 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? Those who have cared about you and wanted what was best for you in life. Ten seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. Whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. You know, they're the kind of people television does well to offer our world. Special thanks to my family and friends and to my co-workers in public broadcasting, family communications, and this academy for encouraging me, allowing me all these years to be your neighbor. May God be with you. Thank you very much. So again, that's Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, getting a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 97 Emmys. And here's why I wanted to put this out there, because as is often the case with Mr. Rogers, uh, what he says is quite biblical. He says so many people helped him get to that night, and he wanted to reflect upon the many people who had played large and small roles in him getting where it was. He wasn't up there going, aren't I the best? Look at what I've done. I killed this. Uh, you finally uh, acknowledged my greatness, right? But instead he's going, no, no, I'm standing on the shoulders of people who have carried me along the way, who have supported me, who have, if I could use some biblical language, spurred me on. And I think that's a beautiful thing. But then to turn it to the crowd, most classic Mr. Rogers thing. Obviously, mm-hmm. he was also a minister uh, earlier in his career. He said, all of us have special ones who have loved us in the being. And then he had to take a 10 minute, a 10 second moment of silence to just think about if you've seen the movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, you know, he does this in a restaurant as well. And just to think, to take a moment, how many of us slow down enough to just reflect? And there's people, if you watch the video in tears as they do this, mm-hmm. he says, just think about the people who have loved you who have spurred you on, who have pushed you, how pleased they must be to know how you feel. And then he thanks the Academy and family and friends for encouraging him and allowing him to be their neighbor. And the last minute we have, that's what I want to encourage all of us to do. Who are the people who've spurred you on uh, to, to in your faith in maybe in your career, maybe just as a person, 
as a man or a woman, who are the people who have uh, encouraged you, who still encourage you, who maybe aren't with you anymore? Uh, take some time today, right now, this weekend uh, to think about them and to maybe reach out to them and let them know the effect that they've had on your life, maybe to uh, pray prayers of thankfulness for them. Uh, who are the people that God has used to spur you on? And I'll close this way. Who are the people that you're doing that for as well? That when that other person is taking their 10 seconds to think about the people uh, who have uh, really uh, helped them along the pathway, who are the people that will think of you? Who are the people who you're building into and who you can have an effect on? Uh, I think this is such an important foundational thing for us as humans, but particularly as Christians. Uh, who are the people that are spurring you on? Who are the people that you are spurring on? Once again, Mr. Rogers, encouraging us and challenging us. I thought that was a great way to end. Well, Ian Simpkins will be back with us on Monday. We're really grateful that you joined us all week long. Hope you have a great weekend. Uh, my name is Brian Fromm. You have been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.